0: Chapter Two of Aesthetic as Science of Expression and General Linguistic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Reichert Aesthetic as Science of Expression and General Linguistic by Benedetto Croce translated by douglas ainsley 1865 to 1948 chapter 2 intuition and art corollaries and explanations before proceeding further it seems opportune to draw certain consequences from what has been established and to add some explanation identity of art and intuitive knowledge We have frankly identified intuitive or expressive knowledge with the aesthetic or artistic fact, taking works of art as examples of intuitive knowledge, and attributing to them the characteristics of intuition, and vice versa. But our identification is combated by the view held even by many philosophers, who consider art to be an intuition of an altogether special sort. Let us admit, they say, that art is intuition. But intuition is not always art. Artistic intuition is of a distinct species differing from intuition in general by something more. No Specific Difference But no one has ever been able to indicate of what this something more consists. It has sometimes been thought that art is not a simple intuition but an intuition of an intuition in the same way as the concept of science has been defined not as the ordinary concept but as the concept of a concept thus man should attain to art by objectifying not his sensations as happens with ordinary intuition but intuition itself but this process of raising to a second power does not exist, and the comparison of it with the ordinary and scientific concept does not imply what is wished for the good reason that it is not true that the scientific concept is the concept of a concept. If this comparison imply anything, it implies just the opposite. The ordinary concept, if it be really a concept and not a simple representation, is a perfect concept, however poor and limited science substitutes concepts for representations it adds and substitutes other concepts larger and more comprehensive for those that are poor and limited it is ever discovering new relations but its method does not differ from that by which is formed the smallest universal in the brain of the humblest of men what is generally called art by antonomasia collects intuitions that are wider and more complex than those which we generally experience, but these intuitions are always of sensations and impressions. Art is the expression of impressions, not the expression of expressions. No Difference of Intensity For the same reason, it cannot be admitted that intuition, which is generally called artistic, differs from ordinary intuition as to intensity. This would be the case if it were to operate differently on the same matter. But since artistic function is more widely distributed in different fields, but yet does not differ in method from ordinary intuition, the difference between the one and the other is not intensive, but extensive. The intuition of the simplest popular love-song, which says the same thing, or very nearly, as a declaration of love such as issues at every moment from the lips of thousands of ordinary men, may be intensively perfect in its poor simplicity, though it be extensively so much more limited than the complex intuition of a love-song by Leopardi. THE DIFFERENCE IS EXTENSIVE AND EMPIRICAL. THE WHOLE DIFFERENCE, THEN, IS QUANTITATIVE AND, AS SUCH, INDIFFERENT TO PHILOSOPHY. SCIENTIA QUALITATUM. CERTAIN MEN HAVE A GREATER APTITUDE, A MORE FREQUENT INCLINATION FULLY TO EXPRESS CERTAIN COMPLEX STATES OF THE SOUL. THESE MEN ARE KNOWN IN ORDINARY LANGUAGE AS ARTISTS. Some very complicated and difficult expressions are more rarely achieved, and these are called works of art. The limits of the expressions and intuitions that are called art, as opposed to those that are vulgarly called not art, are empirical and impossible to define. If an epigram be art, why not a single word? If a story, why not the occasional note of the journalist? If a landscape, why not a topographical sketch? The teacher of philosophy in Moliere's comedy was right. Whenever we speak, we create prose. But there will always be scholars, like M. Jourdain, astonished at having created prose for forty years without knowing it, and who will have difficulty in persuading themselves that when they call their servant John to bring their slippers, they have spoken nothing less than prose. We must hold firmly to our identification, because among the principal reasons which have prevented aesthetic, the science of art, from revealing the true nature of art, its real roots in human nature, has been its separation from the general spiritual life, the having made of it a sort of special function, or aristocratic circle. No one is astonished when he learns from physiology that every cellule is an organism, and every organism a cellule, or synthesis of cellules. No one is astonished at finding in a lofty mountain the same chemical elements that compose a small stone or fragment. There is not one physiology of small animals and one of large animals, nor is there a special chemical theory of stones as distinct from mountains in the same way there is not a science of lesser intuition distinct from a science of greater intuition nor one of ordinary intuition distinct from artistic intuition there is but one aesthetic the science of intuitive or expressive knowledge which is the aesthetic or artistic fact and this aesthetic is the true analogy of logic logic includes as facts of the same nature the formation of the smallest and most ordinary concept, and the most complicated scientific and philosophical system. Artistic Genius Nor can we admit that the word genius or artistic genius, as distinct from the non-genius of the ordinary man, possesses more than a quantitative signification. Great artists are said to reveal us to ourselves but how could this be possible unless there be identity of nature between their imagination and ours and unless the difference be only one of quantity it were well to change poeta nasatur into homo nasatur poeta some men are born great poets some small the cult and superstition of the genius has arisen from this quantitative difference, having been taken as a difference of quality. It has been forgotten that genius is not something that has fallen from heaven, but humanity itself. The man of genius, who poses or is represented as distant from humanity, finds his punishment in becoming or appearing somewhat ridiculous. Examples of this are the genius of the Romantic period, and the superman of our time. But it is well to note here that those who claim unconsciousness as the chief quality of an artistic genius hurl him from an eminence far above humanity to a position far below it. Intuitive or artistic genius, like every form of human activity, is always conscious, otherwise it would be blind mechanism. The only thing that may be wanting to the artistic genius is the reflective consciousness, the superadded consciousness of the historian or critic, which is not essential to artistic genius. Content and Form in Aesthetic The relation between matter and form, or between content and form, as it is generally called, is one of the most disputed questions in aesthetic. Does the aesthetic fact consist of content alone, or of form alone, or of both together? This question has taken on various meanings, which we shall mention, each in its place. But when these words are taken as signifying what we have above defined, and matter is understood as emotivity, not aesthetically elaborated, that is to say, impressions, and form elaboration, intellectual activity, and expression, then our meaning cannot be doubtful. We must therefore reject the thesis that makes the aesthetic fact to consist of the content alone, that is, of the simple impressions, in like manner with that other thesis which makes it to consist of a junction between form and content, that is, of impressions plus expressions. IN THE AESTHETIC FACT, THE AESTHETIC ACTIVITY IS NOT ADDED TO THE FACT OF THE IMPRESSIONS, BUT THESE LATTER ARE FORMED AND ELABORATED BY IT. THE IMPRESSIONS REAPPEAR, AS IT WERE, IN EXPRESSION, LIKE WATER PUT INTO A FILTER, WHICH REAPPEARS THE SAME AND YET DIFFERENT ON THE OTHER SIDE. THE AESTHETIC FACT, THEREFORE, IS FORM AND NOTHING BUT FORM. From this it results not that the content is something superfluous, it is on the contrary the necessary point of departure for the expressive fact, but that there is no passage between the quality of the content and that of the form. It has sometimes been thought that the content, in order to be aesthetic, that is to say transformable into form, should possess some determinate or determinable quality but were that so then form and content expression and impression would be the same thing it is true that the content is that which is convertible into form but it has no determinable qualities until this transformation takes place we know nothing of its nature it does not become aesthetic content at once but only when it has been effectively transformed Aesthetic content has also been defined as what is interesting. That is not an untrue statement, it is merely void of meaning. What, then, is interesting? Expressive activity? Certainly the expressive activity would not have raised the content to the dignity of form, had it not been interested. The fact of its having been interested is precisely the fact of its raising the content to the dignity of form. But the word interesting has also been employed in another, not illegitimate sense, which we shall explain further on. Critique of the Imitation of Nature and of the Artistic Illusion The proposition that art is imitation of nature has also several meanings. Now truth has been maintained, or at least shadowed with these words, now error more frequently nothing definite has been thought. One of the legitimate scientific meanings occurs when imitation is understood as representation or intuition of nature, a form of knowledge. And when this meaning has been understood by placing in greater relief the spiritual character of the process, the other proposition becomes also legitimate, namely, that art is the idealization or idealizing imitation, of nature. But if by imitation of nature we understood that art gives mechanical reproductions more or less perfect duplicates of natural objects, before which the same tumult of impressions caused by natural objects begins over again, then the proposition is evidently false. The painted wax figures that seem to be alive, and before which we stand astonished in the museums where such things are shown, do not give aesthetic intuitions. Illusion and hallucination have nothing to do with the calm domain of artistic intuition. If an artist paint the interior of a waxwork museum, or if an actor give a burlesque portrait of a man statue on the stage, we again have spiritual labor and artistic intuition. Finally, if photography have anything in it of artistic, it will be to the extent that it transmits the intuition of the photographer, his point of view, the pose and the grouping which he has striven to attain. And if it be not altogether art, that is precisely because the element of nature in it remains more or less insubordinate and ineradicable. Do we ever, indeed, feel complete satisfaction, before even the best of photographs? Would not an artist vary and touch up much or little, remove or add something to any of them? Critique of art conceived as a sentimental, not a theoretical fact, aesthetic appearance and feeling. The statements repeated so often with others similar, that art is not knowledge, that it does not tell the truth, that it does not belong to the world of theory, but to the world of feeling, arise from the failure to realize exactly the theoretic character of the simple intuition. This simple intuition is quite distinct from intellectual knowledge, as it is distinct from the perception of the real. The belief that only the intellective is knowledge or at the most also the perception of the real, also arises from the failure to grasp the theoretic character of the simple intuition. We have seen that intuition is knowledge, free of concepts, and more simple than the so-called perception of the real. Since art is knowledge and form, it does not belong to the world of feeling and of psychic material. The reason why so many aestheticians have so often insisted that art is appearance, shine, is precisely because they have felt the necessity of distinguishing it from the more complex fact of perception by maintaining its pure intuitivity. For the same reason it has been claimed that art is sentimental. In fact, if the concept as content of art and historical reality as such be excluded, There remains no other content than reality, apprehended in all its ingenuousness and immediateness, in the vital effort, in sentiment, that is to say, pure, intuition. Critique of Theory of Aesthetic Senses The theory of the aesthetic senses has also arisen from the failure to establish or from having lost to view the character of the expression as distinct from the impression, of the form as distinct from the matter. As has just been pointed out, this reduces itself to the error of wishing to seek a passage from the quality of the content to that of the form. To ask, in fact, what the aesthetic senses may be, implies asking what sensible impressions may be able to enter into aesthetic expressions and what must of necessity do so to this we must at once reply that all impressions can enter into aesthetic expressions or formations but that none are bound to do so dante raised to the dignity of form not only the sweet colour of the oriental sapphire visual impression but also tactile or thermic impressions such as the thick air and the fresh rivulets which parch all the more the throat of the thirsty the belief that a picture yields only visual impressions is a curious illusion the bloom of a cheek the warmth of a youthful body the sweetness and freshness of a fruit the cutting of a sharpened blade are not these also impressions that we have from a picture maybe they are visual what would a picture be for a hypothetical man deprived of all or many of his senses who should in an instant acquire the sole organ of sight the picture we are standing opposite and believe we see only with our eyes would appear to his eyes as little more than the paint-smeared palette of a painter some who hold firmly to the aesthetic character of given groups of impressions for example the visual the auditive and exclude others, admit, however, that if visual and auditive impressions enter directly into the aesthetic fact, those of the other senses also enter into it, but only as associated. But this distinction is altogether arbitrary. Aesthetic expression is a synthesis, in which it is impossible to distinguish direct and indirect. All impressions are by it placed on a level, in so far as they are aestheticized. He who takes into himself the image of a picture or of a poem does not experience, as it were, a series of impressions as to this image, some of which have a prerogative or precedence over others. And nothing is known of what happens prior to having received it, for the distinctions made after reflection have nothing to do with art. The theory of the aesthetic senses has also been presented in another way, that is to say, as the attempt to establish what physiological organs are necessary for the aesthetic fact. The physiological organ, or apparatus, is nothing but a complex of cellules, thus and thus constituted, thus and thus disposed. That is to say, it is merely physical and natural fact or concept. BUT EXPRESSION DOES NOT RECOGNIZE PHYSIOLOGICAL FACTS. EXPRESSION HAS ITS POINT OF DEPARTURE IN THE IMPRESSIONS, AND THE PHYSIOLOGICAL PATH BY WHICH THESE HAVE FOUND THEIR WAY TO THE MIND IS TO IT ALTOGETHER INDIFFERENT. ONE WAY OR ANOTHER AMOUNTS TO THE SAME THING. IT SUFFICES THAT THEY ARE IMPRESSIONS. IT IS TRUE THAT THE WANT OF GIVEN ORGANS, THAT IS, OF GIVEN COMPLEXES OF CELLS, produces an absence of given impressions, when these are not obtained by another path by a kind of organic compensation. The man born blind cannot express or have the intuition of light. But the impressions are not conditioned solely by the organ, but also by the stimuli which operate upon the organ. Thus, he who has never had the impression of the sea will never be able to express it in the same way as he who has never had the impression of the great world, or of the political conflict, will never express the one or the other. This, however, does not establish a dependence of the expressive function on the stimulus or on the organ. It is the repetition of what we know already. Expression presupposes impression. Therefore, given expressions imply given impressions besides every impression excludes other impressions during the moment in which it dominates and so does every expression unity and indivisibility of the work of art another corollary of the conception of expression as activity is the indivisibility of the work of art. Every expression is a unique expression. Activity is a fusion of the impressions in an organic whole. A desire to express this has always prompted the affirmation that the world of art should have unity, or, what amounts to the same thing, unity in variety. Expression is a synthesis of the various, the multiple, in the one. The fact that we divide a work of art into parts, as a poem into scenes, episodes, similes, sentences, or a picture into single figures and objects, background, foreground, etc., may seem to be an objection to this affirmation. But such division annihilates the work, as dividing the organism into heart, brain, nerves, muscles, and so on, turns the living being into a corpse. IT IS TRUE THAT THERE EXIST ORGANISMS IN WHICH THE DIVISION GIVES PLACE TO MORE LIVING THINGS, BUT IN SUCH A CASE, AND IF WE TRANSFER THE ANALOGY TO THE ESTHETIC FACT, WE MUST CONCLUDE FOR A MULTIPLICITY OF GERMS OF LIFE, THAT IS TO SAY, FOR A SPEEDY RE-ELABORATION OF THE SINGLE PARTS INTO NEW SINGLE EXPRESSIONS. IT WILL BE OBSERVED THAT EXPRESSION IS SOMETIMES BASED ON OTHER EXPRESSIONS. There are simple and there are compound expressions. One must admit some difference between the Eureka, with which Archimedes expressed all his joy after his discovery, and the expressive act, indeed all the five acts, of a regular tragedy. Not in the least, expression is always directly based on impressions. He who conceives a tragedy puts into a crucible a great quantity so to say, of impressions. The expressions themselves, conceived on other occasions, are fused together with the new in a single mass, in the same way as we can cast into a smelting furnace formless pieces of bronze and most precious statuettes. Those most precious statuettes must be melted in the same way as the formless bits of bronze, before they can be a new statue. THE OLD EXPRESSIONS MUST DESCEND AGAIN TO THE LEVEL OF IMPRESSIONS IN ORDER TO BE SYNTHESIZED IN A NEW SINGLE EXPRESSION. ART AS THE DELIVERER BY ELABORATING HIS IMPRESSIONS, MAN FREES HIMSELF FROM THEM. BY OBJECTIFYING THEM, HE REMOVES THEM FROM HIM AND MAKES HIMSELF THEIR SUPERIOR. The liberating and purifying function of art is another aspect and another formula of its character of activity. Activity is the deliverer, just because it drives away passivity. This also explains why it is customary to attribute to artists alike the maximum of sensibility or passion, and the maximum insensibility or Olympic serenity. Both qualifications agree For they do not refer to the same object. The sensibility or passion relates to the rich material which the artist absorbs into his psychic organism, the insensibility or serenity to the form with which he subjugates and dominates the tumult of the feelings and of the passions. End of chapter two. Recording by Lisa Reichert.